Now, what would be the odds that that was happening again, that that wasn't a new report? Was that a new report or an old report? That's what I'm asking. Is it a new report or an old report? Is that a new report? Well, we don't know. When a seasoned sports fan teams up with a millennial, opinions may vary, but the debates assuredly won't disappoint. Check your sources. It's New Report, Old Report. Here's your hosts, John Lund and Al Renato. Well, Al, another exciting week in athletics, we have crowned a World Series champion in Major League Baseball. Nothing circles the wagons quite like the National Football League. Shakeups in college football coming this weekend. The NBA is off and running as it always is. And we remember one of the most famous and successful college basketball coaches of all time throughout the show. But as we do, since we are baseball fans, We have an opportunity to put a cap on this season and talk about a World Series that, aside from the two teams involved, I'm not sure how much excitement baseball fans felt for it. Potentially after game one and moving through the series, the ratings will tell a story of probably the worst in baseball history. Not that I'm personally offended or care about TV ratings because I don't care about the money's changing hands with those folks. Ratings don't mean nothing to me, high or low, as far as those things are concerned. So when you hear they were the worst ratings ever, yes. But there's assuredly some good tales within this World Series that we could highlight. One of them being that the Texas Rangers win its first World Series after some heartbreaking defeats in 2010 and 2011. By heartbreaking, I mean literally one strike away twice and unable to get the job done. Some nail-biting games, of course, and even into the last game, up until the ninth inning, it was a feeling, I'm sure, for Rangers fans of how are we going to blow this one and somehow watch the series go to another game that shall not be named in six. The Texas Rangers all but cruised to a World Series title. That's probably too kind of a word, but they did handle their business They won the World Series over the Arizona Diamondbacks in five games, and now they get to celebrate for the rest of the week. One of the players saying how much they're celebrate, we'll drink until we drown, was one Max Scherzer, who you saw from a total of twice in the postseason, but the man knows how to party. So if you want to have a good time, if you're a Texas Rangers fan or player or coach, that's the guy you could follow. What did you think of this World Series, the ending, and how it'll be viewed, I guess, nationally from the pundits who aren't too excited about having to talk about Rangers and Diamondbacks in the last couple days after that series wrapped up? Well, Johnny, first of all, belated happy birthday to my partner, the great John Tidyline, who celebrated his birthday over the weekend with his lovely wife. And also has his first anniversary coming up. So uh, all the congratulations to you and your beautiful bride. And great to be back with our fans and friends again. And it is going to be a mixed bag. There are going to be those out there that you've heard already who say, well, what what do you want? You know, isn't it supposed to be about everybody having a chance? You bitch and moan about the teams with the big payrolls. You don't want them in it every year. You don't want Boston and New York and the Dodgers you know, and the Braves at, at all in it every year. And well, this is what you got. 
you know, you get Texas who did have a big payroll because they spent a ton of money a couple of years ago on what's turned out to be a great acquisition with every penny and Corey Seager won his second world series MVP and uh, the former shortstop and now second baseman for them, uh, Simeon and they make probably he and Marcus Simeon probably make the best up the middle combination in baseball. They should for what they're being paid, but you get that argument. We're saying, you know, you can't have it both ways. You can't bitch about you know the big power teams with the big salaries, big markets being in it all the time. And then when these teams are in it, you complain about that. The problem that we have is that the teams that weren't necessarily the biggest markets, like the Braves, which are a pretty big market, but not the payroll of Yankees, Red Sox, Dodgers, et cetera. Um, the Phillies, the Diamondbacks, excuse me, the, uh, the Rays, the Orioles, smaller markets, all with better years went bye-bye in the early rounds. And we were left with the Diamondbacks. And don't get me wrong, Texas was good all year. They were on a hundred win pace and then the wheels fell off when they had injuries. They snuck in. No, they got in because they pulled it out down the stretch in a wild four team race of which, uh, you know, two teams were going to the wild card, uh, excuse me, three teams were going to the wild card and one team was going to be the division winner. Well, Houston wound up being the division winner in a three team race and Texas went and Toronto went and Seattle got on the left on the outside looking in the four teams. One team wins a division. The other two go as wild cards. And remember, they were right there with Houston, you know, for the division. So you know, they didn't sneak in by virtue of, you know, 82, 83, 84 wins. Uh, they weren't an afterthought. No one did not give them a chance because they have one of the deepest lineups in all of Major League Baseball. The question mark was their pitching with the injuries. Obviously, Scherzer down for the count, pitched a little bit in this series, relatively effective his second outing, but only went a couple innings to the back, you know, bit him in the fanny. And they got Yeoman's work from Nathan Evaldi and Jordan Montgomery. Their bullpen was questionable, and their bullpen was terrific in the World Series. And somehow, someway, they managed to go undefeated on the road, which is mind-boggling. But they have one of the deepest lineups in Major League Baseball. It's a relatively uh, stable lineup with Seager right, and Simeon up the middle. The third baseman, Young, is a rookie. Tavares, the center fielder, is a you know, uh, rising player and a young player, a wonderful defender. The kid who played left field is 22 years old, was in double A a few months ago. Looks like he's got a chance to be a big-time player. He was terrific down the stretch and throughout the playoffs. And they had the ALCS MVP and probably who would have been the, arguably the World Series MVP, uh, former Cardinal, Adalis <laughs> uh, Garcia, until he got hurt for the last two games. So you know, Seager continued to excel in the MVP. That's a lineup that's all relatively young. You know, some of them very young all in their prime or still to hit their prime. Uh, all-star catcher Jonah Hine. So their everyday lineup 
it's not a deep bench, but their everyday lineup is very, very strong and not going anywhere anytime soon. The Diamondbacks are a different story. The Diamondbacks obviously had, had a great start. They fell below 500. It looked like they were in huge trouble. But then they caught fire again, and they snuck into one of the wild cards with 84 wins and stunned everywhere, everybody at every venue they went, You know, sweeping Milwaukee and Milwaukee, stunning the 100-win Dodgers in three straight when their starting pitching just fell apart and or disappeared via injury. And then somehow, some way, beating a really good Philly team that lost the last two games at home after taking a 2-0 lead, going to the road, got there one, came home before that massive crowd and lost both games. And lo and behold, you know, if it's Phillies, Texas, you've got a hell of a series. And I think that probably has a much larger viewership, bigger market in Philly, uh, more offense, bigger name players and East coast. Instead, you know, you get Arizona, you get Texas, you get a, a Western series from a football state in Texas, and I'm not sure what it is state in Arizona, which we talked about last week. And nobody watches. You know, the worst ratings in the history of, of the World Series. Probably going to come in at you know, seven million or so last night. Uh, Eight million a few nights ago. These are the least watched games in the history of this world. Think about this for a second. And granted, many, many, many moons ago. But in a uh, this was 19. 19- 80. So we're talking 43 years ago. But Philadelphia and Kansas City, not exactly a giant market, but a giant name in George Brett, over 40 million people watched Game 6 of the World Series. I believe it was Game 6. Over 40 million. You had 9, 8, 7 million people watching this. It's The, the drop-off is gargantuan. Um, Baseball has become a regional sport, not a national sport. We like what we saw in the regular season. but And people are saying, well, you know, now the best team doesn't win anymore. Well, Houston was the best team last year. They won. Dodgers were the best team a few years ago. They won. Incredibly competitive teams during the regular season. When you play tournaments, the best team doesn't always win. NCAA, one and done, NHL. Usually the NBA, the best team wins because it's five guys. But in Major League Baseball, the more you're going to expand, the greater the chances are that somebody's going to jump up and bite you in a series, especially when the earlier rounds are two out of three and three out of five. It gives the underdog a better chance. You have to win less games. Now, I think we're going to see one change. As we discussed that infinitum, this was my system. This was exactly the system that I wanted. Three division winners, three wild cards, two buys, and then off you go. All right. Six plays three, you know, the worst division winner, four plays five, and the winners play the first and second place teams top division was the gut buys. I was never a fan of reseeding. I do believe it's going to happen. Uh, Commissioner Manfred, who you know I'm not a big fan of, was on with our fearless leader, the great Christopher Mad Dog Russo, yesterday. And they had their uh, World Series discussion. 
their post regular season discussion and discuss changes uh, for next year, the health of the game, expansion, the never ending stadium saga, ballpark saga with Tampa and the potential move of, uh, of the A's to Vegas. And at the very end, when Chris's last question was about receding and the commissioner said, you, you might have a hook in my mouth there. And I agree. I, I am ready for the recede. The NBA recedes. The MLB does not. We should not have had to have the Braves play the Phillies again. The Braves were the best team in baseball all year long. They should have played the Diamondbacks. After they finished their buying, they should have reseeded. So it's Braves against worst-seeded Diamondbacks, worst record in, in the league. And the Dodgers and the Phillies go at it. Instead, you know, the Braves had to play a team that they were in the same division with and, and you know, won by, what, 12 games, 14 games, whatever it was. Um, I think that's going to change next year. I don't think you're going to see that again. I think you're going to see a reseed. And the people say the argument is, well, there's no more value to the regular season. Because if you're going to be the top seed and rest versus rust – and yet, CC Beth, he says, ask every team, they'll take the days off, which I agree with. But the problem is, if you are going to really value the regular season, well, there's further impetus to get that one seed if after the bye, you're playing the four seed. You always know you're going to play the worst team versus having to face a team that may be a higher seed, but by virtue of not receding, you don't get to play them because they wound up upsetting, in this case, the Dodgers. So I think it would, because they always talk about valuing the regular season. And by adding more teams and the two out of three and the three out of five and the chance for upsets, you're devaluing the regular season. All you got to do is just get in. Everybody's got a chance, etc. Well, if you take that scenario and recede, you are giving further value. Well, why should we play for the one seed? Who cares? It doesn't matter anymore. Well, this is further impetus to get that one seed. Not only will you get the buy and the time off, but it's guaranteed that after the buy, you'll play the worst team. That you'll, you'll play the worst survivor coming out of those first rounds. And I think that is a necessary, I don't want to call it evil. I think it's a necessary change. I really do. And I think you're going to see it absolutely positively next year. I don't mind the two out of three. Uh, and they play them right away. What happened this year is, you know, we had three sweeps or four sweeps. So all those teams that weren't supposed to get rest got rest. And then you mix it in with TV. Why do have all the games on TV? There's only so many things you can juggle. That I understand. I would like to eliminate some of these days of rest for those first-round winners uh, because I think that obviously allows them to reconfigure their pitching, which evens the, you know, evens the score uh, and takes away some of the advantage that the one seed had with the rest because they can line their pitching. When you give those wild card winners two more days, instead of being short on their pitching, uh, they get a chance to potentially throw their aces back out there and get their pitching realigned. Now, I can't say you can't eliminate all the off days. You still got to have a couple in there. But the point is, I don't like an off day when teams aren't traveling. There's absolutely no reason in a three out of five if you're not traveling, there's no reason for an off day. One, two, travel. Three, four, 
travel back if necessary. No one day off, two day off for travel, three, maybe another day off or three, four, travel for five. Uh Uh-uh. Back-to-back games, one and two. Back-to-back games, three and four. I don't want to change the, the... the DS is to seven, to four to seven. That's too many. Remember, when we first did divisions, the, the division, the, the CSs were three out of five. Those series are, they're riveting. Because when you're in a three out of five and you lose a game, you think it's the end of the world. You really do. Unless you're up too well. You think you're, you're, your back's against the wall. You can't breathe. So I love the three out of five. But they have to recede. So it's one versus the worst record in each league and eliminate some of those days off when you are not traveling to return the home, or return the advantage to the top seed because that's what 162 games is for. That's supposedly what you're playing for. You're playing, you're playing more games than anybody else. So if you're playing more games than anybody else, that regular season should mean more than anybody else's. It still does because only 12 get in, but you have to do a better job of maximizing the importance of that 162. I think those are two ways to do it. And I certainly think you're going to see the receding next year. I don't know if you'll see the elimination of the days off, but I would like that as well. And it, it's not necessarily the case that you know, the best team doesn't always win. But when you play tournaments, that's always the possibility. You know, how often do we see four one seeds go to the final four? And we're always disappointed. We love the upsets, but boy, when that Cinderella gets to the Final Four and they get no shot or they go to the Elite Eight and they win an Elite Eight in force, we're pissed. We want those guys to make it to like the Sweet 16 and then get out. Then go away. Right. Do we want a hideous team playing in the Super Bowl? Not really. We want to, it's the Super Bowl. It's, it's one game. The whole world is watching. You're doing four out of seven. And I get exposed, you know, it, it, it even bugs me as a fanatic. But for the people who you're trying to draw in, nobody wants to watch fucking openers pitching a World Series game. Where's your starters? You're in the World Series. You don't have four starters. What are you fucking doing here? Pitching, pitching eight guys out of the bullpen. I mean, come on. How are you a World Series team and you don't have four starting pitchers? Nobody wants to see fucking openers. The game must put more of an emphasis on starting pitching. Nobody wants to see this constant bullpen shit in the third inning. You get your five, you get your six innings, it's a different story. That's been going on for years. Tony La Russa did it. Uh, Dick Williams did it for him. Sparky Anderson did it for them. Captain Hook. Right. But, you know, give me six. Give me six into the seventh. This manipulating in the second, third inning, second time through the lineup, third time through the lineup. Come on. It's not the fucking sport. It's not the sport. It's not the game. It's the computer. It's the analytics. Can't face this guy a second time. This guy comes up a second time. We got to we got to take our guy out. And yet, you know, you hear about that. And then what happened, you know, in in the Philly and, and Brayton? Or what happened in the Philly and down back game? We hear early on from John Smoltz that, Philly's management said, if their starter has got to face Corbin Carroll a second time, we may make a move. And this is their third starter. Not a reliever. So if he's in a spot you know, where Corbin Carroll left is coming up second time, second time up, we may have to make a move. And he, he was pitching fine. Carroll came up. There's no reason to take him out. 
Got it. Cool. Then later in the game, later in the game, after the Phillies had taken, tell me if this makes sense. After the Phillies had taken the lead, two to one, in a huge spot, they came back from one nothing. They get the two one lead. This is a potential. This is game six. This is to win the series. And with a two one lead and a base open after a sacrifice, and Corbin Carroll at the plate, you pitch to him. I don't care who's pitching to him. Why are you pitching to him? He's their best player. Forget about times through the lineup. Forget about you know, facing him so many times, et cetera, et cetera. You were going to yank your starter the second time, potentially. This guy came up. The guy was pitching fine. He stayed in. Well, now Corbin Carroll, their best player, is up. And the most important run of the game is at second base. And you got a base up. And you pitch to him. They pitch to him. He grounds a base hit up the middle. Tie game. Steals a base. Another base hit. Boom. You're behind three to two. You lose game six, then you lose game seven. Makes no sense. Makes no sense. On the one, on the one hand, I can't pitch to him in, in the third inning, potentially. That didn't happen. That was a discussion. But yet in the most important out of the game, most important bat of the game with the base open, you pitch to him. Makes no sense. Play the game. Put the computer away. Fold up the slide rules. Watch the game. Got tendencies. You got all your information. Now, how do you miss that? Open your fucking eyes. It's right in front of you. Don't let the best team on the best guy on the other team beat you in the biggest spot in the most important game of the year. Make somebody else do it. Bit him in the ass. And I like Rob Thompson, but I thought that was a horrible decision. Absolutely horrible decision. But no, nobody wants to see, and they have to do they have they have to do something about getting more starting pitching. Nobody wants to see starters. Excuse me, nobody wants to see relievers starting games and being yanked out of games in the second inning or getting bombed. You know, the second guy getting bombed after the first guy went an inning in a third because he faced his limit of four guys. Come on. There's a reason these guys are relievers. They weren't good enough to be starters. Sorry, that sounds like old school, but that's the deal. Because you're not sending your closer out there to start the game. Who's your best reliever? You're not sending your setup guy out there. Who's your second best reliever? You're setting your middling guys out there. Nobody wants to see that in a World Series game. That's what you say with the Diamondbacks. It's ugly. It's hideous. At least Haney, who started for Texas as a starter, sometimes reliever, but they signed him as a starter. He was, you know, their fifth starter um, for a good portion of the season. And some of their other guys didn't see the light of day. But at least they had, despite injuries, you know, three starters they ran out there. So, and a hell of a lineup. The Diamondbacks don't hit a lot. You know, they play small ball. I got no problem with that. It's fun. It's fine. But uh, they just, in this series, they look like they did not belong. And I know that sounds harsh, but they look like they did not belong. I mean, to me, Texas was clearly the superior team. Let's take a quick break to pay the bills. He's Al Renato. I'm John Lund. We'll be right back with the new report, old report here on Sports Radio America. We welcome you back. I'm John Lund. He's Al Renato, and this is the new report, old report. We also know from the new side how 
garbage Major League Baseball is at marketing its youngest and best and most outgoing stars. And this World Series certainly didn't help that aspect. Because aside from Garcia on the Rangers, who broke onto the scene for a lot of people in the championship series, what we, he did and even continued into the world series before he got hurt. There's not that much pomp and circumstance happening on the diamondbacks or the Rangers. Like you would get if the Braves were in there with all their young talent, if the Phillies were in there with Harper, with Castellanos, with those guys that actually did stuff in the first couple games of the series and then completely went away from, remembering how to hit, but people recognize Bryce Harper. People know the Dodgers. You don't even need to have one guy. They know the Dodgers as the team. They know the Astros as the cheaters and Altuve and Bregman and those guys are either rooting for them or rooting against them. As unfortunate as it's to say the best teams have the most known storylines as far as players go. I think part of their problem here is that Texas has got a lot of those guys you know, Seeger is a, is a great player and signed a huge contract and uh, would be the MVP if not for Otani and is his second World Series MVP award. And you know, they've got the ground, but you never got to see him. They traded for Mad Max. You saw him a little bit. Uh, Simeon is a terrific player. Uh, but because of where they came from, you don't have the same kind of national following. You could have this with Texas if Texas continues along this way. I think they will become much more of a, a team that people will have national interest in because it's a big market and they have some big names who are big-time players. But since there were 100 losses two years ago and didn't make the postseason last year, this is a team that you know a lot of people – don't know, especially east of the Mississippi, but they also have the big-time manager that will lend to, and we didn't even discuss Bruce Pochi, his fourth World Series, believe it or not, fifth overall, fourth World Series championship, which is truly amazing, after he took some time off. Uh, further proof that you don't, don't need to be uh, you know, 35 years old with no major league experience. Yeah, how much do you think manager. he was using analytics in the binders, Al, when he was managing these Texas Rangers? Every, every play, probably, every pitch. He had the loose leaf binder, um, the, the three ring notebook. But you know, I, I think that was part of the problem with Texas because Texas has got you know some really identifiable players. It's just that not enough people, they, they haven't been good long enough. They came from 100 losses two years ago and you know, they were everybody's darling the first half of the year and then the wheels fell off. Now, don't get me wrong, they, they didn't drop to the degree that um, – Arizona did, but they actually fell below 500, but they fell back into a, a three-team race for the division. And it was in doubt because, as we talked about to open the show, because of the wild card scenario and the strength of their division, it was up in the air as to whether or not they would even make the postseason because of Toronto and Tampa and Baltimore, you know, over in the East. So as a result, you know, people are just catching on, I think, to them. And I think in the future, they could be a, a bigger ratings ticket. But you know, Arizona, I, I just don't ever see, you know, the Arizona Diamondbacks being, you know, a, a, a big ticket with where they play um, in, quite frankly, sorry, Arizona, the middle of nowhere. Uh, not a big market, not a big baseball market. And, you know, some identifiable players, 
But, you know, Corbin Carroll's their best player. He's a rookie. They got a really nice young pitcher in Gallon, but he's still a kid. And you know, Merrill Kelly's the second best pitcher. I mean, he's a, he's a journeyman. He's pitching great. So th- there isn't a lot of electricity. Uh, you know, a lot of pizzazz. Texas has pizzazz. I mean, just look at the look at Adelis Garcia. I don't say that because he's the former Cardinal that they gave away. But he's electric. He's magnetic. His personality, his style. He is everything that the young person's game is about with the bat flips, taking three weeks to go around the bases, and the big grin, you know, the, hitting the ball a gazillion miles, striking out four times in a row, and then hit the game clinching home run. That's what people love. Swing hard, hit it hard, run hard, throw hard, bat flip hard. That's today's game. Um, and he's a perfect example of that. So I think Texas got some, they, they got some, you know, some, you know, real uh, pizzazz. Uh, I don't see it from Arizona. Uh, so, I, and I can see Texas, uh, Texas won the best team, best team didn't win. Uh, you know, with a healthy DeGrom and a healthy Scherzer next year and more pitching to come, I, I think Texas will win that division, to be quite honest with you. So I don't think they're going anywhere for a long time. I think they're going to be a regular uh, in the uh, in the postseason for years to come. So people better get used to it. I think there'll be a bigger following for them as a result of that. Another last old take for your side from me, along with not having as many big individual names per se on each team, playing both games in a dome with the roof closed. It just kind of gave you the feel you were playing MLB the show or some other sort of video game. There just wasn't that. I don't know what it is, but in your mind, you just expect that cold factor in an October postseason and they got the roof closed. Everybody's nice and warm. We're having a grand old time, but that like fall ambiance that you're kind of used to, at least for half of the games for the cold side of whoever might be playing wasn't there. So that's just played with your mind. Let me ask you this as a young pup as the leader of the new report because everybody on the other hand always complains when we get to this time of year and games are in New York or Philly uh, in let's call it not warm weather locations uh, or covered facilities, at least have the ability to be covered facilities, indoor facilities. Would you rather half of the world series games at least be at risk of either being rained out or played in 42 degree weather versus knowing that you're going to be safe the entire series. Uh, and let's leave, let's leave, you know, California out of it uh, for a second, but let's just talk about, uh, the, you know, the buildings that you, you have the ability to close the roof. Uh, would you rather have that and play all indoor baseball? While visually it was a mind trick because you're used to seeing the cold I think as far as the games go, and I used to have this this thought come October, is this is your most important series and your most important games. I know the elements are part of baseball, obviously, but sometimes that impacts, and it has impacted. I shouldn't say sometimes. It's impacted baseball games. And you would think if you have like a football mindset where you want your Super Bowl played in a place that's comfortable and not in New Jersey – in the cold, in the rain, or in the snow. The same should be said for baseball, where guys aren't freezing their ass off that might not be used to that, having that be another addition to the game. This way here in a dome, it's a clean playing field in a sense. Do you ever think we will see the day, and let's say not you, let's say me, 
because you've got a lot more years left than I do. So let's let's say in the next 15 years, do you ever think we will see the baseball, if not the entire postseason, the World Series played at a neutral warm weather site outdoors? Uh, L.A., San Diego, uh, I don't want to say San Francisco because that's usually not warm at any time of year. But, you know, say, say L.A., San Diego, Florida, where you can keep it open um, so it's naturally warm. You ever think we'll see that? We learned during the pandemic a couple of years ago that you can make a lot of things happen if you set your mind to it. I think if they could figure out the money side, that's obviously the most important thing to these owners. How are they making the money that they would miss can out they get on? People, you think, can they, they have to get people there, too, for, four, for seven games? Right. You have to Which fill the stadium in general yeah. and then make sure the owners that won't have their own stadiums filled somehow get a piece of that pie. Yeah. And you're not really getting it from the TV side, unfortunately, depending on the, the lineup. Mm-hmm. I think the best way for it to happen is just over time, teams just keep shelling money out for these new stadiums. They put roofs on the things. And that's probably how we'll get there. Maybe not the neutral field side of it where they just pick the warmer places to play. Just because, as you mentioned, it unfortunately is getting very regionalized, Major League Baseball, in that regard. And owners are going to lose that money because they're lucky to get the local fans to come. It's not like when the Dallas Cowboys play and you've got 60% of the stadium filled with away fans. You're not always going to get that on the baseball side, at least not at this moment. So I'm sure we'll see things change in some way toward that warmer wise trying to have it be a more equal side but if the money doesn't match it they're not going to make the move we'll see it was just very interesting this world series it's something that we haven't seen much of and i'm sure rangers fans feel real bad for us <laughs> Look, a lot of folks they, out there your age out that were weeping uncontrollably because their team finally fucking are, won they are very deserving they had a terrific season they beat the champs they swept Baltimore, who won 100 games. They beat the champs in you know, the, the, the second series in four years where Houston won three games on the road and somehow lost four games at home. And Texas did not lose a road game in the postseason, which was astounding. Redemption as well for a friend of the show, Christopher Mad Dog Russo. Gentlemen staying sweep alive. and staying alive. Still work. Still working. Stand Still alive. working. Let's take a quick break to pay the bills. He's Al Renato. I'm John Lund. We'll be right back with the new report, old report here on Sports Radio America. We welcome you back. I'm John Lund. He's Al Renato, and this is the new report, old report. We'd be remiss, of course, if we didn't mention some news that came across the college basketball and sports world Wednesday night in the passing of legendary head coach Bob Knight at the age of 83. 902 wins as a head coach at Army, at Indiana, at Texas Tech, coached the U.S. Olympic team to a gold medal in 1984, won three national championships, including an undefeated season at Indiana 1976, that would be also in 81 and 87, five final fours. One game in two years. One loss in two years. Five final fours, 11 Big Ten regular season titles as well. An NCAA champion as a player to boot in the Basketball Hall of Fame, 
in the College Basketball Hall of Fame. The lists go on and on for Bob Knight's accomplishments on the court, as well as many other instances of good and negatively viewed things off the court. Polarizing is probably one of the best words you could use. It's the best word. It's it's the word. Fiery, but passionate, compassionate. The media had a lot to do with portraying Bob Knight in his last third of his career on the more negative side of things. The world was changing. What you could and couldn't do as a head coach was changing as well, and he didn't change with it and used many of the same coaching methods that got him to the apex of the sport. Some of that might have went a little bit too far, crossed the line with some players. Some of it was viewed throughout the media negatively in many ways. Some of it he had to speak on and didn't want to. So the portrayal of Bob Knight in his swan song as a coach was a lot different than when he was rising in the ranks as one of the best coaches. It's interesting on this show, the new report and old report, because my generation of millennials starts watching basketball around 2000-ish when we're 10, 11 years old. Bob Knight's gone at Indiana. Bob Knight's now in his third and what would be last chapter at Texas Tech University coaching the Red Raiders. It's interesting how the the historical part of his career is viewed by people that are in their 20s and 30s just based on where his career ended up. Because as great as he was in Indiana, that's done in the year 2000. So we're all in junior high and probably getting into basketball. You flip the calendar year, he's at Texas Tech. And he's, he's decent. He makes a sweet 16 and... 2005, and the fascinating stat I find of that, Bob Knight makes the Sweet 16 in 2005. It was the first time he had won more than one tournament game in a tournament since 1994. First time to win more than one game in a tournament since 94 was in 2005, and it'd be the last time he got to a Sweet 16. So obviously, stats-wise, the accomplishments weren't there when the apex started to go down from the heyday of Indiana basketball. So you watch college basketball, you learn about Bob Knight and what he was as a coach previously and how good he was with Indiana, but you didn't get to see those times. You saw the Texas Tech and the ending and the allegations and some players speaking out, and it's just a different picture than what people were used to when they first came across Bob Knight at Indiana. And then, of course, we see a couple years ago, He's finally able to turn to Assembly Hall and get the standing ovation he deserves after years of, of just hating Indiana. No, once they let him go, refused he, to go he back. didn't want to go back. He didn't want to talk refused to the players to that refused to turn their backs in Indiana, the announcers, the media, anybody that still was with them were dead to him. And a lot of other coaches around college basketball, relationships were severed, and it took a lot of years for them to get back if they did. So it was great to see that, but obviously he was not doing well health-wise at that moment. It's nice he had one more moment in the sun on the court, of course, but after that, we didn't really see from him again, and this was the end at age 83 on Wednesday night. So it's just different for generations as far as how you view Bobby Knight just when you were around his career. It's a fascinating tale. There's so many different layers to his life, as there are with so many 
but it's been interesting to hear. We heard on Big 12 radio today from three of his former players, and they couldn't have spoke more highly of him, not and only as a coach, but as a person. And all his players, I shouldn't say all, but almost all of his players have the same types of sentiments. What you see is one thing, but what he was is another. And it's just a, a very polarizing, as we said, story that came to an end at the age of Who did you have on today? We had on Ronald Ross, who was probably the star player for that 2005 Sweet 16 team. He came on as a walk-on in 2001, the first year that Bobby Knight was the coach there. So he wooed him to play for him, and he had a ton of great things to say, obviously, in helping him get back to his first Sweet 16 since 94. And the first at Texas Tech since, I believe, 1996. Daryl Dora came on. He was a center from 2003 to 2007. He, Texas Tech fans know, for making a clutch three-pointer against Kansas in double overtime in 2005, that Sweet 16 run. They call him the Kansas killer around Texas Tech, so they'll know him as that. And Andy Ellis came on. He was a senior the first year that Bob Knight came over and had a couple stories to tell about why he stayed with the team and how quickly things changed once Bobby Knight became the head coach. So we kind of went into the beginning, the middle, and most toward the end of his career today, which is really cool. Might have a couple other players on tomorrow, but across all Sirius XM, they've had on a ton of different people that have been around Bob Knight's life. Jim Beheim was on with Adam Shine, of course, to talk about their relationship throughout coaching and being together in the Olympics. So there's a ton of different people that have great stories to tell. As we always say, it's unfortunate that they all come out when somebody is gone, but good that they do come out. And just uh, there's a unfortunate but that usually comes with sentences about Bobby Knight or he wasn't for everyone. But I think if you really paint the entire picture, it's not going to be as bad as some people might be led to believe. Well, he was, as you said, polarizing. He was a dinosaur. He refused to change. He refused to adapt to the times. It was you know, my way or the highway. Um, he was an extraordinary leader, motivator, a brilliant coach, a brilliant tactician, a brilliant student of the game. And you know, as you heard today, and as I've heard over the many, 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 many years, his players adore him. They swear by him. They look up to him. They admire him. They are grateful to him as a life teacher and leader. And you hear that from Quinn Buckner. You hear that from Scott May. You hear that from the great, and I do mean great, Isaiah Thomas, Mike Woodson, uh, to a man. They they loved everything about their experience at Indiana. They loved him. He gave them tough love. Uh, he led them. Uh, he taught them life. He taught them basketball. Uh, his goals were to win. His goals were to build young men, uh, to have them go to class, to have them graduate. And to have them go out into life and be in a scenario where he gave them something to build on after basketball uh, and live an ever-improving, uh, enriching life. 
And when these guys come back and you hear them talk about, and I recommend to all who are sports fans, especially basketball fans, a special that HBO had a few years ago called Perfect. And I believe if memory serves me correctly, it was narrated, narrated by John Kruger Mellencamp. And it was the story of everybody going back. It was the story of the perfect season, the last perfect season, 1976. Um, when in the year before, virtually that same Indiana team was undefeated. Uh, they lost one game in the postseason in the Elite Eight to Kentucky when Scott May had, had broken his wrist and had a cast on and tried to play in that game and just wasn't effective and came out and they lost, I think, by two, maybe four, to a very, very good Joe B. Hall Kentucky team that went on to win the national title in 1975. And uh, behind Jack Gibbons, then record-shattering 41 points uh, in the finals. And uh, I'm sorry, not 41. Walton had more than that. Walton had 44 in the finals. So I take that back. It wasn't record-shattering. But I believe Goose Gibbons had 41. And that was the only game they lost. And he told them the next year when they came back that they they did what he told them to do and played to the best of their abilities that he thought they could win every game. And it was virtually the same cast. Uh, you know, Quinn Buckner, uh, who gave up football, played both sports at Indiana, who was the leader of the team. Scott May, who was the All-American and Player of the Year. Uh, Kent Benson, who was the center and leader of first-round draft pick. Uh, Tom Abernathy, who was the new starter uh, to replace Steve Green, who graduated, and Bobby Wilkerson, who was the defensive stopper, about 6'7", uh, wonderful player, also played you know, with the Nuggets in the pros, was first-round draft pick. And it, it, but the, he had plenty of first-round draft picks, but that was pretty much the group. Benson did not come back for the special, nor did Wilkerson, but the rest of the group did, along with a couple guys off the bench, and it was an extraordinary special because it showed the highlights of those years, all the wins, the loss, the heartbreak of the loss, and them reflecting on all of it, them all talking about it together you know, with Bob Knight when they all went back to Indiana. Um, and it was a remarkable special and love that they had for their coach, who was there, as I said, he was their life teacher. And he molded them and he worked them and he pushed them. And, you know, Indiana is not for everybody. His style was not for everybody. But he was a brilliant coach. He's the, really the father of the motion offense, uh, which is you know, obviously movement. Everybody always moving without the ball, creating space, uh, not dribble, 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 dribble. Uh, this is before the three-point. And then after the three-point, you know, obviously won a national championship, knocking off Syracuse with Steve Alford and the three-point role in the first year of the three-point role uh, in 1987, broke my heart with Key Smart's uh, jump shot from the corner. The ability he had to adapt uh, offensively uh, with the various players that he had and the various talents that he had, uh, his last national championship in uh, this his second national title in 1981, not his last one, his second one, uh, when they beat North Carolina and Michael Jordan in uh, before Michael Jordan was there, I apologize, which was virtually the same team without Michael Jordan. It was Jimmy Black, right? It was Sam Perkins. It was um, Matt Doherty. Um, 
they beat him in the finals. And that was Isaiah Thomas's team with Landon Turner and uh, Tolbert. Uh, they were a very, very good team. Were they the best team that year, talent-wise? Probably not. Uh, that game was played in the 50s. But his man-to-man defense, and he was, that's what you played at Indiana under Bob Knight. No zone, uh, no funky stuff. Knock down, drag out in your face, fight through, fight through, scheme, fight through screens, man-to-man defense. And you know, Bob Knight was not afraid. You know, his team scored a lot of points. They ran. They, they absolutely, they would fast break. And his undefeated team, if you look at the record of that undefeated team and the average margin of victory, it's one of the handful of greatest teams for a single season, along with so many of the UCLA teams, of all time. They were remarkable. They basically, they had a couple that were snuck by. You're, you're always going to have a couple where you have a big play made by you know, you know, a, a tip-in or you know, a winning jump shot. But they were a remarkable team. And that was the, still the last undefeated team in NCAA uh, regular and tournament play. And that was his, that was, you know, his first national title. He was a fabulous coach. Difficult man, um, emotional man. Could be very difficult with the press. Um, he was an ogre at times, but he was also a gentle giant at other times. Sometimes he was a teddy bear. And very close relationship with Tony LaRusso, Bill Parcells, uh, similar strong personalities. And you, know, you, you, you you said the absolute best word. You know, he, he was absolutely positively polarizing. Uh, incredible judge of talent. Uh, Jay Billis told a great story this morning about you know, Bob Knight was the coach of the Olympic team. He had Michael Jordan for that Olympic team. And he said Jordan was the best player he ever saw. Best player he ever saw. And, you know, in the... Uh, in the 80 Olympics and to the 84 Olympics, apologies. We were, we boycotted in the 80, in the 84 Olympics. And as they were getting ready for the draft, after Michael Jordan's junior year, when he went into the draft, you know, Akeem Olajuwon was going to go number one and Portland had the second pick, Chicago had the third pick. And the way Billis tells the story, the general manager of the Blazers called Bob Knight to ask him what he thought about the draft. And he says, we got the second pick. You got to take Jordan. He's the best player. And the general manager for the Blazers said, well, we need a center. You know, Sam Bowie was legendarily taken with the second pick instead of Michael Jordan. And when he, when the GM said, well, we need a center, he says, well, then draft Jordan to play him at center. He's the best player I've ever seen. And obviously, as everybody knows, unfortunately for Portland, they drafted Sam Bowie, who uh, was struck down by terrible, terrible injuries, which ruined his career. And the Bulls got Jordan, and the rest is history, six championships, and the greatest player of all time. So he's a pretty good judge of talent, too. He came around at the right time for how he was as a coach, both just how he wanted to revolutionize offense how he handled his players in doing so to get them to follow how he wanted to handle things and how he wanted to do things on offense and defense. Everybody today, former players just talked about 
how often he was just watching film, breaking stuff down, breathing, eating, sleeping, basketball. And he acted like that on the sideline. You would expect him to be absolutely obsessed with basketball. And he was till the end. And some of the greatest tirades, some of the greatest on-court tirades in the history of sports. Yep. You know, throwing the chair across the court, pounding his fist. You know, that was the classic. Throwing the chair. You know, and folks, he didn't throw the chair at anybody. He took a plastic chair and he slid it across the court uh, when he was so upset with the officiating. I believe that was the legendary Ted Valentine. Uh, he's on my all-time list of most despised officials. You're not uh, like Ted Valentine, no. <laughs> the the uh, stare-downs he'd give that man, goodness. Pounding his fist on the scorer's table, the legendary post-game press conference when he was asked about a player having his game face on and his response being, I never understood what that question is. What's a game face? And then he starts making all kinds of funny faces, contorting his face, contorting his face. Uh, I mean, he was, uh, you know, at, at times it was, at times it was hysterically entertaining and other times it was, it was ugly. Uh, because he had such a temper, but uh, it was he was you said polarizing, which is absolutely the case, and it was fueled by passion. Bob Knight had unbelievable passion, and sometimes he simply could not control it, whether it was officials, whether it was the press, and whether it was his own players. Al, it's always a pleasure. We'll do it again next week. Folks, from my partner, the great John Tiny Lund, I am El Renato and KL from White Plains. Have a great sports weekend, everybody. We'll be back 8 p.m. Eastern time here on Sports Radio America. You can listen at sportsradioamerica.com and interact with the show there as well or find us on the TuneIn app by searching for Sports Radio America. You can also follow John Lund under the same handle on Twitter at London Bridge. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>